0: Let's grab open our Bibles, grab with enthusiasm, with passion, with purpose, because this is the Word of God that we read, that we study, and that we pray that the Lord will use to not just give us information, but to transform us. So let's pray, and then let's get into the Word this morning. Lord, I'm just so thankful that in the midst of uncertainty and in some ways increasingly uncertain times, we have a certainty and his name is Jesus. And Lord, we build our lives. We build our place, our faith upon the rock of our salvation. The one thing that will not be moved, as Hebrews said, though, all that can be shaken will be shaken. We have a king and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we live in that unshakable kingdom. And Father, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your scriptures. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you'd encourage us, you'd edify us, that you'd do whatever you need to do. Open our eyes to see you, open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this day, we pray in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you came in late, let's get your Bibles. And before you automatically turn to Hebrews, because I know we've been doing a series on faith, you're probably already there. Who's already in Hebrews? No, but you were. I'll mention Hebrews, but we are going to turn, and our main passage this morning will be in Joshua chapter 3. As you turn there. Let me give you some edification this morning, just because you look like you need it. There was an elderly lady who was well known for her faith and her boldness in talking about it. She'd stand on her front porch every day and shout out, Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord for His goodness! Praise the Lord for all that He provides! Next door to her lived an atheist who'd get so angry, he would shout, There's no God! He's not real! Hard times set upon the elderly lady and she prayed, to God to send her some assistance. She stood on her front porch and shouted as she normally would, praise the Lord, praise God that he provides my needs and he will give me the groceries that I need. The atheist had an idea. He thought, I know what to do here. And the next morning the lady went out on her porch and noted a large bag of groceries. She started praising praise the Lord, at which point the neighbor jumped from behind the bush and said, aha, I told you there was no Lord. I was the one who bought those groceries. God did not, the lady thought for a moment. Then she got even more excited. She said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Not only did he give me groceries, but he made the devil pay for them. (laughs) It's an oldie but a goodie. I don't think it has any direct relevance to the message. But we are talking about faith. We've been in this series looking at faith, looking at the nature of faith, and hebrews 11 has been our main text where the writer says faith is the assurance it's to be sure of to be grounded in to be assured and to be certain the evidence the proof and then we talked about well what is it that gives us this certainty what is it that gives us this assurance and hebrews 10:23 if you just turn a few passages earlier gives us such a profound statement We're assured because of this reality, that he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Just a wonderful truth. Just reflect on that. Get that in your heart and your spirit this week. He who promised is faithful. I guarantee you it will change your perspective. So I don't want to summarize all of what we've covered, but I'll hopefully bring out the main point, just by way of review, because I know not all of us will have heard the other messages, in this way. Every single person has faith. Every single one of you in this room, every person, regardless of their worldview, regardless of their religious preference, has faith in something. We all have faith. We might not recognize it as faith, but we all have faith. We all have a certainty in our lives that we base our faith in. So think of it like this for a moment. Let's look at some of the prevailing worldviews in certainly the society in which we live. Many people would ascribe to be agnostics or atheists. I won't ask for a show of hands in here. But the agnostic certainty, I think, is a fascinating one. The agnostic says that, in fact, we cannot know for certain. I don't know, and nothing can actually be known for certain. And so I would always like to ask an agnostic this particular question. Say, okay, well, and here's a question you can ask them. How do you know for certain? Just think about that for a moment. How do you know for certain? You see, for the agnostic, their faith is in the certainty that nothing can be known for certain. Don't think about that too much. You'll get yourself very dizzy. The atheist says... Well, no, there is a certainty, and we can know for certain that there is no God. And they might base their certainty upon their view of science, their understanding of the word, their ability to reason. But if you boil it down, it comes to this. The atheist's certainty is in themselves. That's That's the basis of their certainty. That I know, that I can examine everything in the universe, and I can determine conclusively that there is no God. And most people tend, as they think that through, to move from an atheistic point of view to an agnostic point of view because it is, I would suggest, foolish thinking to somehow put our faith and our certainty in us. The more we know, the more we discover, the more we realize we don't know. And that is a brave man indeed, a man with much more faith than I, to put their certainty and their faith in themselves. We could continue, the idea is not to look at worldviews per se, but the Muslims put their faith in Muhammad, etc., etc. All worldviews have their faith in something or someone. And I mention it for this reason. Biblical faith, and this is what we've been looking at, is fundamentally different. Our certainty is not based in the certainty of uncertainty. Our certainty is not based in the certainty of me or of any person. Our certainty is in the one who said, I am. It's in who the scriptures reveal him to be and who he has proven himself to be. Our certainty as believers is because God said it. Because God said he is and he's proven himself to be and there is nothing more certain than that. That's why we can have certainty in the midst of uncertainty because our certainty is placed in the one thing that is truly certain. The king and the kingdom that is unshakable. That's good news, that is. Just find someone and say, that's actually, that's really good news. My certainty is not in uncertainty. My certainty is not in myself or in any person. My certainty is in the one who is and has proven himself to be. He who promised is faithful. You see, he promised that he would reconcile and redeem humanity right back in the garden. The introduction of sin, the first thing he does is he promises that he will make a way. And he who promised was faithful. He promised that if we would repent, turn from our sin and believe in him, that his blood would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he who promised is faithful. And if you put your faith in him in that way, you would know what it is to be forgiven. There's nothing more wonderful and incredible than that. He has promised that he would not leave us as orphans, but he would reveal and restore the relationship to a loving father. And he who promised is faithful. You can participate a little bit. It's okay. It's okay. Just letting you know. Don't have to. He's promised that he will never leave or forsake us. And even during the trials, if necessary, though we will have trials, he has overcome the world. Our faith will grow and refine and strengthen. And he will work all things together for the glory and the good of those who love him. And he who promised is faithful. He has promised that he has a plan for your life. And he will use you and I to proclaim his glory and the goodness of our God. And he who promised is faithful. And we could go on. We could continue. The point is this. The certainty of our faith. Our faith is placed and anchored in the certainty of who he is. And who he has proven himself to be. This is the adventure of faith. And God is wanting to stir and encourage us in this area of faith, I believe. We defined it as people who are fully leaning upon and fully living out this adventure, this reality, this understanding of who God is. It's an incredible journey. So I would ask us then, after having spent some weeks looking at, you could say, a a definition, hopefully a definition that's helped encourage, stir us up in this area of faith a little bit, How do we then posture ourselves to be a people of faith? And that's the title of our focus this morning, the posture of faith. Because if you're like me, I I like definitions, definitions are good, but I want to know how it works. How does it work? What does it look like? How do we do it? How do we truly live as a people of faith? And there's many different ways that we could look at that. But I want to look at Joshua chapter 3. And I want to look at this for a few reasons. First of all, because it's a good story. Who likes good stories? A few of us. Okay. I like good stories. But more than that, the book of Joshua, I think, is the most wonderful picture in the Old Testament of what it means to actually live out and walk into the promises of God. Just in the same way that the story of God sending Moses and redeeming his people is the most wonderful picture. There's plenty in there, but I would suggest it's the most wonderful picture of God's salvation in the Old Testament. That by the blood of the Lamb, the people are redeemed from captivity. They're set free. Just as that's a picture of salvation, Joshua is a picture of then us entering into his promises, entering into the promised land. And I also believe that there's something in this specific passage prophetically for us in this season. So we'll get there. So let's read Joshua chapter 3. And before we launch in, a little bit of context. Moses has passed away. Joshua has assumed the leadership of the Israelites. And the Lord has spoken to Joshua and said, Now is the time we're going to cross the Jordan. We're going to enter into the promised land. So if you read from 1 verse 10, you'll then see that Joshua goes throughout it says he commands his officers and the people pass through the midst of the camp command the people get ready for we're going to cross the Jordan and enter into what the Lord has for us so the Lord has spoken he's told everybody you can see this expectancy They're all waiting to see, wow, this is the moment. We've been waiting a generation for this moment, and we're finally here. They send spies ahead of them. The spies at the end of verse 2 come back, and they say, truly the Lord is with us. He's given the land into our hands. It's all going to happen. This is the moment. So let's see how it unfolds. Are we ready? Is anybody ready? Okay. Joshua 3 verse 1, it says Joshua rose early in the morning. Here they are, they crossed the Jordan, They they set out from Shittim, let's move on. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. So did you catch that? Here's what: the expectancy, the excitement. They're on the move. God has said it. Joshua's gone through the camp. What do they do? They pick up. There's all one to two million of them, we believe, at this stage. What do they do? They camp right beside the river. What an anticlimax. They had this incredible promise. And then in the very next scene, here they are, camped beside an incredible problem. Ever feel a bit like that? You get this promise from the Lord. The Lord says, here it is. We're going to do what you think. Praise God. Here we go. And in the very next scene, you are camped beside an impossible problem. What is that about? Well, as I said, this is an encouragement about what it means to be a people who posture themselves in faith. And so point one is to recognize that there is waiting. There is Waiting. Don't be afraid of the waiting. We need to, to be a people who wait well and who brace the waiting. You see, I'd love to know here, I'd love to know a few more details because it doesn't exactly tell us what transpired here. There's probably two options. One option is, this was all part of the plan. The Lord had said, this is what you're going to do. Go and get everyone really excited. Tell them we're moving, we're going over the Jordan and then plomp them down right in front of the river. That's one option, that this was all part of the plan. It doesn't say that. But that could be one option. Another option could be that Joshua actually had no idea how the Lord was going to do it. And I would suggest that perhaps that is the case because it's not until later on, chapter 3, verse 8 and onward from there, that the Lord begins to reveal his strategy. As they camped at the river, he says, okay, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to do this. The people will go, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. I'll part the waters. At this stage, I would suggest that it's, it's very likely that Joshua had no idea. He just had this incredible promise from the Lord. Now's the time. You're going to cross the Jordan. And all he knew was he just had to wait and see what the Lord would do and camp there right in front of the problem. And I just wonder, you know, what were the people thinking at this stage? They'd in fact been here a generation before, if you read the story, under the leadership of Moses. And they'd exercised such a level of unbelief that the Lord had said, okay, it's not going to be you that will enter into the promise. We're going to wait a generation and try again. And here they are in the very sight of the promised land and they're camped in front of probably the greatest problem that they've come across in their lives in the generation of this people that was alive. So the point in either case is, whether Joshua knew, whether Joshua didn't know, there is a waiting at times to see the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. There is. There is a waiting process. And it might be three days, as in this case, it might be three years, it might be 30 years. There's examples, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, of people who never saw the fullness even in their lifetime. There is a waiting process. So how do we wait well? How many of us like waiting? There was a couple of people in the earlier service who said, yes, actually, I." one of them said, I love waiting. Waiting is just a wonderful opportunity to pray, to seek the Lord. I said, God bless you. Can you pray for me? Because I don't wait well. I find waiting very frustrating, particularly when it's unnecessary waiting. I've shared before about how it seems like almost every time I exit our new place, a little bit out of town to drive in there, I'm right behind a slow driver. And it feels, it feels to me like there's a whole village of slow drivers that wait there expectantly. Here he comes. We're going to park ourselves right in front of him. But being in the car for me is a wonderful time to exercise patience. And so is the other place that I I struggle with in terms of waiting is in supermarket queues. Anyone else have a thing about supermarket queues? There is nothing worse. And we had this, um, when my wife and I first got married, we lived up the north side. We had someone offer us a house. I said, come and house it." the house. It could have been in hindsight because I didn't want to live up there. Nothing against the north side. Nothing at all, but at that particular time, they'd built all the suburbs, and there was none of the infrastructure. There was one road in and out, and you literally would queue for hours to get in and to get out. There was one supermarket, and this is a true story. We, we'd go to get our groceries. It's, I mean, I know this is a first-world problem, but there was there was so many people and so few checkouts to get through that one of us would go and stand in the sh- the, the the queue. At the moment we arrived, and the other person would go around, do all the shopping, you'd come back, and you'd still be waiting for probably half an hour or so to get through the checkout. Like the queues were that long. There was long queues, there was driving, there was no internet, it was just like a living hell. <laughs> Wasn't really, sorry. <laughs> First world problems, I know, I know. But I still, today, I walk into the supermarkets and I spy out the shortest queue and I time my shop based around how I can get in the most efficient line. Anyone else do that? You keep your eye. And if there, if there is an opening, it doesn't matter if I haven't finished the shopping list, I'm there. Bang! I get home and my wife will say, you forgot all these things. I said, oh, I couldn't find them. They weren't there. Sorry. It's the efficiency of avoiding unnecessary waiting. But we can wait well. And I, was in the su- I was in a... Um, A shopping centre recently, I had a day off and I liked to sort of go for a drive. I'd gone down the coast, went for a surf, was taking the scenic route back home. And I just needed to pick up. Ali had called and said, look, can you pick up some bread on your way home? We're short on bread. I said, no worries, fine. I popped into this shopping shopping supermarket, this little country shop, grabbed my bread. I spied the supermarket queue and there was only two people in there. So I thought, beauty, I'm going to be in and out really quick, no problem at all. Grabbed the things I need. I stood in the queue and I thought, this queue hasn't moved at all. What is going on here? The checkout must be broken or something. I mean, so I had a look around, and this is this is not an exaggeration, but it was the world's slowest checkout process that I'd ever seen. And here was this lady, and they were just having this wonderful chat. And every time she pulled something out of the basket, it was a whole other conversation. Oh, did you hear about Bob and Molly? And you hear what's going on? Oh, did you hear? What? You know, I was like, oh my goodness me! It's going to take forever. And so I did the polite thing. I didn't say anything, but I, you know, tapped my watch and, hello, hello. You're very kind of me, very kind. Anyway, finally, this lady finished her shopping. She walked out the door. I said, hallelujah, we're going to get through here. It won't be Christmas. But then the guy in front of me says, no joke, the whole thing started again. puts his basket, oh, hi, Bob, it's great to see you. This is fantastic. And I was like, goodness me, there's a whole town of these people. And I was convinced that not only do they enjoy the waiting process, but they come to the shops just so they can wait in the checkout queue and have conversations with one another. I'll be back in half an hour, love. I'm just going to go stand in the supermarket queue to my groceries. Can you pick up some bread while you're there? Yeah, sure. No worries. The point is we we can wait well. Waiting is part of this process, but we can wait well. How do we do it? I'm glad you are. So point one is we wait. Point two, here we go. So at the end of three days, this is chapter 3, verse 2, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. As soon, you can see the preparedness, keep your eyes on the ark. Verse 4, yet there shall be a distance between you, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So you get the picture here. Here they are. They're camped in front of this impossible problem, the Jordan River. In fact, if you read on later in the chapter, it says that this was not just the river in a good season. This was harvest season. The banks were overflowing. The Lord had picked the time of year that this river would have been the biggest and the strongest that it was at any other time in the year. So here they are. And what is Joshua? And again, I don't know. Did did the Lord tell Joshua? This is what you to tell the people. Maybe no indication that that happened. Or did he just know that this is what he needed to do? They were camped at an impossible problem. And he said, here's what we've got to do. We've got to keep our eyes on what the Lord's doing. We've got to be ready. There's a problem. This is wonderful picture. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? It's just an incredible picture. It could only be carried by the priests. But fundamenta- fundamentally, it represented the presence of God. The presence of God with his people. So he's reminding there's a problem, but there's the presence of God who is with us. Keep your eyes on him. Be ready. Be ready. They didn't know if it was coming in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day. But the, the instruction was the same. Keep your eyes on the Lord and what he's doing. Keep your eyes upon the Lord. There's a problem and there's the presence of God with his people. There's the problem. There is the presence. And the Lord says, keep your eyes on the presence of the Lord. And I think this is important for a couple of reasons, and I'll give them to you very quickly. Because the moment we take our eyes off the presence and what God's doing, we go to one of two places. We either go to worry or we go to works. Let's talk about worry. And these people, the Israelites, would have known this well because they were in the same place a generation ago where it was doubt and their unbelief that caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And if nothing else, I believe the Lord was bringing them into that place again, and Joshua commands them. Here we are again. What will it be that we'll build our theology around? Will we build our theology around the problem? Around the river? Well, look at the river. It's big, it's wide, it's harvest season, it's overflowing, it's banks. We're not going to get across. What are we going to do? Or do we build our theology around there's a problem? But we've got a promise. God is with us. God has said we're going over. I don't know how he's going to do it. And I don't know if Joshua did either. I don't know if the Lord's going to part the waters. I don't know if he's going to build a bridge. I don't know if the angels are going to supernaturally. I don't know. But my eyes are on him. Watch for when he moves. And the moment he moves, don't lag behind. It's be ready. Be ready for him to move. And the moment he moves, you follow. Don't go ahead of him. You won't know where to go. But don't drag behind. Be ready. Keep your eyes always on what the Lord's doing. And you see, I think so often we have a much better theology around the problems of our life than we do around the person who is with us and the promise that He's given us. Is your theology about the problems, personally, you're facing, greater than your theology, your understanding, your knowledge, your assurance your certainty in who he is who he's promised to be and who he will prove himself to be to you never let anything in our lives become bigger than our awareness of who he is we do have a choice where will our theology be the problem or the person of jesus and i was i was thinking of that this week when i had a conversation as i often do with a particular gentleman, all about some of the things that are happening in the world. And look, if you're going to go down that path, I don't know where you will stop. There's plenty of problems out there. There's plenty of rivers. There's plenty of stuff going on. But there was this point in the conversation where I said to him this. I said, you know, you've got a, a wonderful theology around everything that's happening around you in the world. And we discuss scriptures and end times with the Lord's all, all that stuff. But that's all good. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But I said, where's your theology? What what do you think the Lord is doing now, in our time, in our day, in our city, around the world? What's the Lord doing? And he stared at me blankly and he said, you know what? I have no idea. No idea. No idea. Now, there's nothing wrong with, you know, looking at the problem, talking about the river. I, I like those conversations. But our theology has always got to come back to and be based upon, well, what is the Lord doing? What is he doing in the midst of your life? What is he doing in the midst of our city? Because if we don't know that, if our eyes aren't on, how are we going to follow him? How are we ever going to know when he moves and when he what's he doing? And I think tragically, so many of us have a wonderful theology around the problem, but we have no idea about what on earth the Lord is doing. What is he doing? What is he doing in the midst of your circumstance? Keep your eyes on him. Build your theology around the purposes and the promises of the person of Jesus Christ. The other place that if we don't watch and keep our eyes on him, that so often we go is we go to works. And I believe so often this waiting period and this encouragement to watch him is the Lord just saying, so where are you going to go? Are you going to try and make this happen yourself? Or are you going to acknowledge your need of me? And we have a danger, I think, particularly in our modern culture, and I think this has infiltrated the church to a large degree. We have a danger of erring on the side of self sufficiency. And let me explain what I mean. I was thinking about there's a a church in the US, and I listen to a lot of their podcasts, I enjoy their worship CDs. It's a big church, young pastor. And he loves to do this, it's, it's quite different, but they do these worship CDs and he always does these little sermons on the worship CD. There's a track that's him doing a little preach. I said to Adam, maybe we could do that next time. A preaching sermon on the worship CD. But he has this little phrase that is on their latest worship CD. I've heard him use it a lot. I've heard others comment on how wonderful this phrase is. But his quote is this, and I, I don't want to give you his name only because I do think... He's a wonderful guy. I think there's a lot of good things about this particular church. And I don't want to say anything negative about the church. I just want to comment on the statement. Is that all right? You can ask me privately if you want to know who it was. But he says this, We are not waiting on a move of God. We are a move of God. We're not waiting on a move of God. We are a move of God. There's something I love about that. And there's something that I think is incredibly dangerous. The part that I love about that is that so often we have this expectancy of, well, our job's just to pray and, and, you know, just to sit back and be complacent and lethargic. And if the Lord wants to do it, He'll do it. But as Catherine preached recently, we are the sent ones, we're anointed, we're, we're here to declare the glorious grace. Of Jesus Christ. We're here to proclaim the gospel. We're here to bind up the broken hearted. We're here to see people come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a glorious, wonderful call. Oh God, that you'd use us to do that in our city. I can see the excitement and the enthusiasm about that. It's very encouraging. That's the part that that I love. That we we have this responsibility. The thing that I, I feel is incredibly dangerous in that statement is that it It does, and what well, can, I believe it does imply, that we are all we need. We are. That's all we need. We don't need God. We don't need to wait for Him to do something. We can make this happen. And the reason I think that that is so dangerous is that we've become good in the modern church of developing this religious system, means and methods for doing church, even encouraging people how to live the Christian life with little or no regard for the things of God. You know, I'm convinced that the greatest, certainly one of the greatest hindrances for us truly being a people of faith, for seeing all that the Lord has promised us, and for you personally entering into all that the Lord has promised you, is us and the church trying to do the work of God without the power of God trying to do the work of God without the power and the presence of God. Now, we say, well, we don't have to fall on our faces and cry before God, asking Him to move. We've got marketing for that. We don't need to evangelize and reach out and spend our lives proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's what advertising's for. We don't have to ask God and desperately desire His presence. Lord, we need Your presence more than anything. We've got performances and personalities to entertain, to keep bums on seats. This is the danger of us becoming the Laodicean church. And so often this waiting season is the Lord just inviting, will you keep your eyes on me? Will you recognize that I am with you? But will you realize that you actually need me? To do what you could never do yourself. To do the work of God through the power of His Holy Spirit. Number three, really quickly. So this is a call here. Joshua's called the people to wait. He's called the people to watch. Never lose sight of what the Lord is doing. What is he doing? And then number three is he's called the people to wonder. Verse five, Joshua said to the people, get ready. Just consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Get ready. Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, I love that particular encouragement from Joshua because he's not calling the people to an expectation. He's calling them to a life and a posture of expectancy. He doesn't say, get ready, because this is exactly how it's going to happen. You know, the Lord's going to come and there'll be this happening and the waters will part. There's not an expectation, but there is an expectancy. Expectancy. And it could well be, as I said, because I don't know that Joshua's actually received the blueprint yet. He's just waiting. He's knowing that the Lord is going to do something. He is anchored in, certain of who God is, who who he's promised to be. And he's just waiting and he's watching with expectancy, knowing the Lord's going to do something, but not knowing what exactly he's going to do. You see, there's something, and we don't have time to go there, but there's a number of scriptures that we could look at, particularly in the New Testament, where we can see that expectations is something about expectations that limit the work of the Holy Spirit, Him moving. We looked at one example a few weeks ago, the Jesus healing this withered hand. There were these religious expectations of who they expected Jesus to be that prevented them from actually seeing Jesus when He was right in their midst. Another interesting story is Matthew 13:53, where it says Jesus was in His hometown. And they were amazed and wondered, Who is this man who's got this teaching, who's operating in these signs and wonders? And yet it says they did not believe and he could not do or he did not do many signs and wonders in their midst. That's a different expectation. There's religious expectations, but in that instance, it's relational expectations. They were too familiar with who they thought Christ was. There's something about expectations that hinders the power and the move of God in our midst and in our lives. Whereas there's something about expectancy, people like the woman with the issue of blood, if I can just touch Jesus, blind Bartimaeus, crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. The centurion, if you could just speak a word, Jesus, they didn't come with expectations, but they came with expectancy. If just I could touch Jesus, if just Jesus would speak. And in that place of expectancy, the power of God, is released. Something about expectations they hinder the power of God, but there's something about a people of expectancy that when we're in that place, the power of God moves. And we see that here. So the Lord says, live in expectancy. Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders. At that time, the Lord speaks to Joshua. He says, here's the plan. The water's part. The people go through into the promised land. The rest of the story is a message for another day. I want to encourage us because we've spent some time talking about what faith is. About how we anchor our faith into the certainty of who he is. Got to be anchored into the certainty of who he is. What do we do then? We wait, we watch, and we wonder. Now this is important at all times. You know, If you're facing issues in your life currently, if there are big problems, you feel like you might have a promise, but you're camped out at an impossible problem. What do you do? You anchor yourself into the certainty of who he is. You wait, you watch, you wonder. You might feel like you've got an incredible promise from God. How is this ever going to come to pass? You wait, you anchor into his promise. You wait, you watch, and you wonder. But I feel like this is important on another level, and that's for us as a people we enter, we've we entered into a new season and we have some challenges before us. One which I'm sure most of you would be aware of is we are looking for a new building. We thought that that may well come last year or even the year before that. And certainly my plan and purpose and I tried to convince God of my plans and purposes was that it would be much better to be in a new building before we transition to leadership. And I sold him my 10 point plan. I gave him my ideas. I told him all the good reasons. But often I find the Lord's plans are not my plans and purposes. And so instead we've transitioned leadership and now we have this wonderful faith adventure of finding a new building. We don't know when our current lease will be up. could be as soon as middle of next year. So we have a wonderful opportunity and I don't think it is by accident. I think the Lord is... Encouraging us that this is a season into which we are called to be a people of faith. We're called to really anchor ourselves in the certainty of who he is. To face whatever comes without certainty. But posturing ourselves by waiting, by watching, and by living with expectancy. And if I'm perfectly honest, let me leave you with this thought. It's a bit of a a humble admission, but I don't mind telling you that I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Is that okay for me to say? It feels a lot better now, getting it off my chest. I have absolutely no idea how the Lord is going to do it. I have no idea what's going to happen. And in fact, if you're looking for the church that has it all together, the pastors who know all the right things and do all the right things, then you may need to find somewhere else. But I am someone who just wants to anchor myself into a big God and His incredible promises for us as a people. And I want to encourage us. Let's presume that posture of faith, anchored into Him, waiting, watching and wonder, and see what He might do through us in this season. And watch and celebrate. Great, that's a good point to clap. Amen to that. Amen. So let's pray. I know we're a little bit over time. The worship team is going to come back. Just put aside your Bibles. I want you just to close your eyes. and see what the Lord wants to do as we just conclude this time together. And Lord, I want to thank you for this wonderful picture that we see the book of Joshua, particularly chapter 3 as they cross the Jordan, entering into the promised land, this posture of faith, this life that is so anchored into the certainty of who you are, that he who promised is faithful, and that you've said it and therefore you will do it. That doesn't mean we always have the answers, but it does mean that we can be a people who wait well, who posture ourselves in faith by watching, by looking for you, building our theology, not around all the things around us, but the God who is with us and coming to you with that sense of expectancy. I don't even know what it's going to look like but I know what I need is you and I'm reaching out in faith. If we just have you, you will provide and you will make a way. And Lord, I do ask that there would be a stirring in our hearts and lives corporately as your people. That we would become this bold people of faith. Lord, it's no accident that we've begun a new season and already there are challenges that lie ahead. And may this just be opportunity after opportunity of putting into practice our faith, of seeing you do incredible things in our lives personally, in our midst as your people, and in our city, and even in our nation. And we posture ourselves, looking for you. Show us what you're doing. And we thank you, Lord. We acknowledge that you are the one that we need. It's your power and your presence.